Hey, all you A Minor Detail Podcast listeners, Ryan here. A Minor Detail Podcast is kicking off its summer affiliate and sponsor campaign. If you or someone you know is interested in sponsoring a Minor Detail Podcast for a small investment or featuring a business, a big event, or a product on A Minor Detail's various platforms, please reach out to me, your trusty host, at ryan at aminordetail.com, and we'll get you all set up. Now, enjoy the show. We are here Thursday afternoon. This is a Minor Detail Podcast. My name is Ryan Miner. Find me on the web at aminordetailpodcast.com and aminordetail.com. We're in Gaithersburg today at Quincy's Bar and Grill. And if you haven't stopped by, you got to stop by. This is a great place. Excellent food, live music. They do trivia on Thursday nights. And it's really the neighborhood local bar and grill in Gaithersburg. And we have a special guest today for a Minor Detail Podcast. Usually we talk about state politics, and we are going to shift directions today and talk instead about what's happening at the national level from someone who is local to Montgomery County. And with me today, I have a fantastic guest, um, one of my favorite columnists at the Montgomery County Sentinel, Paul Schwartz. Paul, thank you for, for coming on and doing this. My pleasure to be here. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's talk about... You got a new book out, and I want to learn as much as possible today. Talk about your new book, the title, and uh, what you're covering. Well, the book actually isn't all that new. It's over a year old. It's uh, called The Citizen's Perspective, Society, Hypocrisy, and the 2016 Election Cycle. Uh, but it is still relevant today. Yeah. It covers a lot of the, um, the campaign, the 2016 uh, presidential election, uh, and, but in it, it explains a lot of detail why the president who is president now shouldn't have been president. So that's still relevant. But in addition, it does cover a lot of the issues that are still at issue today. Uh, it includes uh, interviews with Raskin and, and Sarbanes and, uh, and Holland and, uh, and Frosch and things like gerrymandering. That's still an issue today. Things like that John Sarbanes worked very hard on uh, with the uh, campaign finance reform and going grassroots and trying to take big dark money out of politics. Yeah. That's still relevant today, and that's all captured in the book. John Sarbanes, who lives in one of the most gerrymandered districts in the country, the third, the third congressional district um, in, in Maryland, it, it doesn't have any contiguous lines. Right. And the, the thing with gerrymandering is that uh, the Democrats... Way to handle that is to have a not bipartisan commission, but a nonpartisan commission. And I think even a democratic state like Maryland would go for that, but not alone. And what Jimmy Raskin was putting forward was what was known as the Potomac Compact. That would combine work as a team between Virginia and Maryland. So then you do it the right way, but it impacts both Republican-held positions, uh, Congress positions in Virginia, as well as the ones in Maryland. So at least there's a, there's a balance. Uh, and and the, the gerrymandering is now before the United States Supreme Court. We don't know what's going to happen. And J- June, we are expecting a ruling, maybe around the 24th. And that's going to drastically affect, or at least it could, how the lines are drawn in the 6th Congressional District. And I, I suspect that I don't know what the court's going to do, but maybe, and what I suspect is maybe they would toss it down. And I, I don't know how they're going to to approach that. Do you have any insight on that? Not, not really any insight, but my hope is that they do it the right way, all right? And even if it meant losing a seat in Maryland, if it's consistent throughout the country, then I think we, we benefit as a country. Right. And to be fair, to be fair how you draw the lines, that is a concern because we, I think it was uh, in Virginia where the n- number of, I forgot which election was 2016 or 2012, but uh, the, the Democrats had won the number of votes, but they lost seats. Yeah. You know, and that kind of thing, whether it's Republican or Democrat, it just doesn't sit well. So let's talk about your background and your career. You, you've been a longtime federal employee, Paul. You work for which agency? Okay. I, I worked for the federal government for 37 years. The first 30 years were with the United States Customs Service, which is now CBP, Customs Border Protection. 
and I worked at the World Trade Center in New York, and then in uh, 1997, I came to headquarters here. Uh, headquarters in, in, in Washington. Okay. And then in uh, 2003, when the Department of Homeland Security was set up, I moved over there for mm-hmm. three years. And then after Katrina, and I always emphasize after Katrina, I went over to FEMA, and I spent the last four years of my career there. And when I retired in uh, 2010, my concern was, what am I going to do with all this knowledge I developed over 37 years? And in my afterlife, which is my role as a columnist for the Montgomery County Sentinel, I find that I am used to that knowledge, that experience becomes very useful in crafting the questions that need to be answered. When you talk about the wall, I could tell you directly that the drugs and uh, President uh, Trump always emphasize about drugs coming in between the ports of entry. Right. And that makes sense to someone who doesn't know, because why would anybody smuggle uh, illegal drugs where there's law enforcement at the ports of entry when you can go between the ports of entry where you don't have a paid law enforcement presence? Well, the answer is because you, they only are able to examine like 3% of the cargo containers coming through the ports of entry. So once if you can smuggle it through there, then you have free reign to go through the rest of the country until you have to get to the port of destination, which could be Newark, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense, but only if you understand why it makes sense to go through the port of entry can you craft questions that pertain to that and hold the feet to the fire to those who are saying, well, what's come between the ports of entry? Which is not the case. When you retired in 2010 from the federal government, how did you approach the Sentinel? How did that relationship build? Interesting. I, I then had time to be inspired by issues. Uh, and the, the, the number one issue that hit me was Newtown. And I got very involved with the gun safety in the state of Maryland. And I testified before the state legislature uh, on behalf of the support of the uh, uh, Firearm Safety Act 2013. In that role, uh, I met and made a connection with Chris Van Collin and Brian Frost mm-hmm. and Jamie Raskin. And uh, from that, I started getting really more political. And I started uh, started with uh, tweets and with uh, uh, Facebook posts. And what you'll notice with Facebook is that uh, somebody puts a, a photo of their cat, it'll get 100 likes. I put out my position on certain key issues, and I'll get three. Yeah. Uh, but from that, I, I then got picked up by a blog, a blogger in uh, Massachusetts, who actually saw some of my Twitter uh, information, and uh, he asked if I would write a, uh, for his blog, which I did. And then I started having a... Uh, some some work, some uh, you know uh, examples of, of work, and so I decided to go to the Gazette to see if maybe they could use me, and I couldn't find the Gazette. This was before it shut down. I couldn't find it. But I what do you mean you couldn't find it? I just I tried to find the address oh. for the office, and I just didn't find it. But what I did find was the address on West Jefferson of the Montgomery County Sentinel. And I went upstairs and I saw Brian Caram. This is over four or five years ago. And I said, can you use any of this? Can you use me to, you know? And he was interested in getting, expanding beyond just the local news to have somebody to cover uh, the uh, nationwide. And I, I started writing a column for the Sentinel like four or five years ago. And I've been writing every week column ever since. Do you, do you just cover predominantly the federal news or are you sort of all over the map and do you cover state news? Did you talk about the election at all in, in Maryland last time? Where it comes to state news, yes, the answer to your question is yes. Uh, I'm also uh, the uh, state legislative chair of NARF, which is National Action Type Federal Employees. And I'm involved in the tax issue. The federal tax plan, it may not have been designed to help the middle class Maryland tax uh, payer. Uh, it may have been designed, 83% we know of the benefit went to the top 1%, and 63% of that uh, went to the uh, top one tenth of 1%. But clearly, if it wasn't designed for the uh, Maryland middle class taxpayer, it certainly wasn't designed to fill the coffers of the state yeah. treasury. And that's exactly what happened. 
and I write about that quite often, the injustice of the federal tax plan on middle-class Maryland taxpayers and the ineptitude or the desire not to do anything uh, on the part of the state legislature. So you're you're a guy that's paid to give his opinion. I would love that gig. So you write a weekly column. Um, but let's let's shift over to the federal politics, and that's what I'm interested in. And then I want to get back to your book and talk about some of the chapters. And let's go back to 2016. You were writing a column um, back then, and you followed the the, the, the race closely. And, and we talked off mic. Did you covered the Obama White House? Is that correct? The tail end. And who at the time was their their press secretary? Josh Ernest. Josh Ernest. And I remember they pretty much did briefings every day. They 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 would come out and talk, and it was the very traditional. They they did, and all their predecessors did. Interesting now is that uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders just uh, broke the record for longest time without a formal press briefing in the press room. Something like over 60 days. Yeah, we have some people laughing at that in the background. But it's no laughing matter. That uh, record broke the previous record, which is set by the Huckabee Sanders press in, in March, which broke the previous record, which is set by Huckabee Sanders press briefing in January. Seems like so, there's a pattern here. I, I would say so. I mean, that's... Uh, keep in mind that even when they had the daily press briefings, she would respond to questions, but she rarely answered the questions. She had her stock phrases. Uh, the, the ones I, I liked is that uh, uh, the president has been very clear on that. Well, if she, she was so clear, the same question wouldn't be asked over and over again. The, the reality is that it wasn't clear, and we're asking the question so she, to make it clear, but she doesn't. And uh, there was some where she'll say that I haven't spoken to the president yet on it. The questions that come out of the press, daily press room were about issues that are going on in real time. So how can you address the press without at least knowing what you're going to do, say to answer at that particular issue, you know? And just avoiding the issue is basically what she was trying to do. She did. Let's talk about the 2016 campaign. What a, When you followed that, there was, what, 17 Republicans, and now I think running for president on the Democratic side. I think there's like nine, uh, 23 now? Is that right? It's, it's, a, it's a big field, and and I can understand why. The, that people see that this country is imperiled. But moving back into 2016, Paul, did you have an idea that this presidency would even be realistic proposition? I could not who is that unfit. And I go back a ways with Donald J. Trump, because I'm from New York, I lived in New Jersey, I was there when he uh, invested in Atlantic City, and I was there when the requirement to invest in Atlantic City was to also invest in the surrounding area. We go to the surrounding area even today, and you'll see there was not much investment. The other thing that struck me, when, this you're talking about the 1980s, and I would go with my wife to Atlantic City, and there would be three casinos by Trump. And I said to myself, how does that make business sense? Because aren't you competing with yourself? Right. Well, apparently, I know more about business, and I don't know anything about business, but I know more about business than he did, because his three casinos were bankrupt. <sighs> At what point did you start taking him serious? Was it the nomination? Was it the campaign? I, th- I think most polls indicated that he was going to lose, and of course he won, but you've grown up, lived in New York City, so I, the more New Yorkers that I talk to, they know who Trump is, they say. They, they can tell you, and most of the reaction is not positive. Okay, no, I know, what kind of guy, I mean, from your experience, even before the presidency, before we really knew who Donald Trump was outside of the celebrity status, we didn't know a whole lot about his businesses um, on the national level. We just knew he was kind of like a third-rate celebrity and got on TV. What kind of guy is he? I'll tell you exactly. He's a con man. We knew that all along, all right? And we couldn't imagine that this country could elect that con man. Uh, what struck me with him is two things that really struck me as the kind of individual that this person is. The way his first wife found out that he was leaving her was by reading the New York Post, where they put about him and Marla skiing in Colorado. That's one thing. The other thing was the Central Park Five. I 
like everybody else, believed that they caught the, the, these perpetrators of this horrendous rape and, and, and attack on this jogger in, uh, jogger in Central Park. However, once the DNA test came back, showing that they were not the ones who did it, and in addition to have somebody actually uh, confess to doing it, this guy, because he can't get over his racist inner hatred, still felt that they were guilty. And he couldn't get over that. He was so sure all along that they were guilty that even when they were shown to be innocent, he still couldn't get over Didn't you take an ad out in the New York Times? I remember that. They talked a lot about that during the 2016 campaign, and that issue continues to creep back into conversations when the question is posed, is Donald Trump a racist? Do you yeah. think he's a racist? I, well, what is a racist? Somebody who does racist things and says racist things. And I'm a Jew, all right? And the Jews will not replace us. Don't tell me that there are uh, fine, very fine people on both sides, all right? So he's, he's a racist. He says anti-Semites. I don't care that his, his uh, daughter married a Jew. I don't care. His inner feelings are, and, and what he's doing with the, the Mexicans, you know, when, when one of these uh, white men blow, shoot up a school, you hardly hear him say anything. If it was a Muslim, he'd say a lot. And, of course, the threats to, with the gun safety, which is a key issue for me, is that you have more white supremacists causing issues than, than uh, people coming from overseas, and he, doesn't, he can't get himself to condemn them. So to me, misogynist, xenophobe, racist, anti-Semite, it all fits with him. And if you vote for him, I'm not saying that you're the, uh, the same thing, but you're, you're allowing it to continue. Uh, yeah, that's a good question, and let's apply some psychology. Look, our country in 2016 came off of eight years of having the first African-American president elected in, the, in history. And I think that in 2008, when Barack Obama was elected, that was a pivotal moment for this country. That was progress. And um, then we, we're now at the point in 2016, and I think there's a confluence of events where I, th I grew up in Western Maryland, and I grew up in Hagerstown. I think that middle-class people um, in a certain demographic, they felt left behind. On top of that, you have non-stop media from the Fox wing that anything and everything that Barack Obama did was bad and they not only characterized him as as a bad president policy wise but it was often everything else um, that was thrown at him that was so personal and I see politics have changed it's no longer really about dissecting what conservative thought is on the right I've seen this that it's it's much more of an emotional appeal to people who are angry and i think trump had tapped into that and he built this coalition and he was saying things that i think the, the that people all along many people kind of felt felt and thought and then he was new and came into this but really people knew that he was unprepared look howard stern i listen to him all the time i'm a big fan he said donald didn't want to be president Donald didn't, he didn't think he was going to be president, wasn't serious, and he, he estimated when he talked to George Stephanopoulos on his book tour that Trump just wanted to, he, wanted, he wrote a book or he wanted to get a new contract on, on NBC because his ratings were failing, right? And that's, you know, we remember that iconic cinematic moment where he comes down the escalator at Trump Tower and announces and says, um, Mexico is the rapist. And I didn't take him seriously throughout the campaign because I was programmed to think that in this country it's just not going to happen. I mean, I was kind of like, oh, it'll probably be Jeb. Well, a, a couple of things. First off, uh, when Barack Obama was elected president, I also believe, look how far we've come. But what it resulted in is people waking up and saying, wow. There's a black person in the White House. How did that happen? Right. And he fed upon that. He fed upon whatever the racism was in this country. That always, I grew up with uh, George Lincoln Rockwell. And that was always an outlier. So now it's become mainstream. He focused on with the birther nonsense 
he he was the father of that. He started it, and to an extent, Fox News allowed him to call into Fox and Friends and perpetuate these stories. And I think t- telling lies, lies. I mean, we should call it what it is. He would call into to Fox News, and I, I remember this. And he would say, "Well, you know, a source close to me. T- he didn't have a source. We know that, Paul. We know that that was nothing but abject BS." And I don't, it, and just the same as, remember when he used to act as his own PR manager? Was it John Miller, John Bear, right, as uh, his son? And then, but some of the lies that the president told, objective lies, where we can say as journalists, as a columnist, as the media, he is, there. this is the truth, these are the facts, and he is absolutely, either he doesn't understand what the facts are, or he's just lying. may have been suckered in, all right, and felt he's, he's saying the right things, and I'll go with him. Uh, the, what, the ones who elected him were not the ones who voted for him. It was the ones who didn't vote at all, all right, and uh, because they, they couldn't figure out between him and her, and they decided they weren't going to vote at all. And it's not Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. It's Philadelphia. It's of Milwaukee and it's Detroit because if those people came out, those states would have been won by her and she'd be in the White House. But the difference between 2016 and for whatever reason you didn't vote or you voted for him, what the difference is with 2020 is that now you've had four years of seeing what he actually brings to the table, which is alienating our allies, trying to be, uh, reflect things like the ones who he respects, like Putin and Kim Jong-un and uh, Erdogan and all of the dictators, that's what he wants to be. And that's why he's ignoring all the penis, all the subpoenas now. He's uh, ignoring them because, hey, he's the president. He's the king. So what does this Congress nonsense have to do with me? You know, I don't, I'm not answerable to anyone. So they're seeing what they got, and I'm hoping that they reject that. And I'm thinking that whether it's Biden or any of the other uh, Democrats, if the Democratic nominee gets all of the electoral votes that Hillary got, and Trump gets all of the deep red state electoral votes, then it's those swing states that, to me, will end up going to the Democrats, especially for Biden, because I can't see him losing Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Yeah. Um, so let's. I, I want to talk about your your time that you spend at the White House. That I think that interests a lot of people, and I know I am fascinated by the press process. When you go to the White House and you sit through the briefings and you get to question sometimes the President of the United States, and I know that you were there yesterday at, during the the press conference, the impromptu press conference, when as Nancy Pelosi described, the President is having a temper tantrum, and she came out today and she said um, somebody needs to stage an intervention with this President, and Nancy Pelosi has been quite a force since she was reelected as the Speaker, so. Let's talk about you go into the White House and how does that process work? What kind of credentials do they do they need from you, and how do they determine that you get a seat at uh, in the press briefings? Okay, well, I'm I'm able to go into the press briefings uh, with my congressional press pass, which I have because I'm a, you know now official reporter for the Montgomery County Sentinel. That gives me free access within Congress and also gets me into the White House. On uh, November 7th, he had this press briefing yesterday, but those are usually controlled. Uh, where he gives you access to him is usually when on the south lawn behind the White House when he's getting on the helicopter to go uh, Andrews uh, to fly out to place. Then he will at times walk along the, the, the uh, fencing and take questions from the uh, reporters. But he controls that because uh, he can make that he doesn't hear you because the helicopter is spinning around. Uh, and so sometimes you'll get a question. As far as the daily press briefings that are no more, as I indicated, those uh, I look forward to when there was a guest, uh, like a cabinet member. So I've gotten questions in uh, to Wilbur Ross uh, on uh, Secretary of Commerce, yeah. Secretary of Commerce on anti dumping and countervailing duty. Hmm. Because that's something I know about. That's a question for that thing. Uh, I spoke to Tom uh, Bobzer when he was an advisor. He's not there anymore since Bolton came in, but when he was there, I was able to talk to him about uh, 
FEMA issues, all right, during one of these disasters. And the one I like the best is, I spoke to Mnuchin, asked him questions. But, and then the one I like the best is Kudlow, because I could specifically talk to him about tariffs. Yeah, do you think that, I mean, Kudlow is a long-time conservative economist or not necessarily but just he's a money guy i used to watch larry's show on cnbc he's very good at what he does and i i gotta tell you it was surprising to see him move into this white house especially as someone who claims to be a conservative conservatives by their orthodoxy and by tradition they wouldn't support tariffs right no there's so much of a difference uh, between tariffs that were created in 1789 when the customs service was created the reason you have tariffs are twofold: collect revenue and also to protect industry, yeah, domestic industry. In 1789, that was critical. Revenue is not so critical anymore since 1913, uh, uh, when the 16th Amendment was created. I mean, a tariff is essentially a tax. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the key thing. It is a tax. It's a tax just like a sales tax is, except instead of the money going to the state coffers, right. it goes to the federal government. Who pays the tax? The tax? This is what I get cuddle with all the time. The last question I have for you is, does the president understand that the, uh, the ones who pay the tariffs are not China, not the country of export, not the manufacturer in the country of export, not the exporter or in the exporting country. It's the importer of record when the merchandise enters the commerce of the United States at the port of entry. And he places that, he passes that uh, tax onto the retailer, Walmart or Target, whoever it is, who then passes it on to the ultimate consumer. So, key thing, Trump says that it's going to coffers, all right? It's not, it's, it is, but it's my money that's going in. It's your there. money, right, it's our money. So it's not Chinese money. Now, there is an impact on China because their products are now being sold at more expensive here. So there is some sort of an impact. But what Trump does is says, well, you could uh, the manufacturer they can go or the imports can go elsewhere to different countries. The smaller countries can't compete with the mammoth labor uh, cheap labor force in China. That's why it's made over there. And you're not going to be able to just create a, 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 an industry here that is not here anymore. My dad, uh, when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, he ran a, uh, a women's garment factory in Manhattan. All right. And uh, it eventually went bankrupt because it couldn't compete with the foreign competition, all right? But cheap labor, and cheap labor means cheap prices. Years later, when I'm with customs and I went up to see importers, it was the same facility, except no cutting tables, no packing. It was all just merchandise that was brought in and then goes to the uh, retailer. So the times have changed. We're in a global economy now. And that's what Trump does not understand. You know, uh, George Bush put uh, cross-border tariffs on steel in uh, 2002. Do you know what happened there? There was retaliation. And, and, and I raised that to Kudlow as well. Are you aware about what happened in 2002 when Bush tried the same thing that, that uh, Trump, Trump was doing? And his answer to me was that Trump is the master negotiator. So that's why things are different now. Guess what? It's not. He just had to take off the tariffs from uh, Canada and Mexico. And uh, so he's having to back down as well. Not only that, but because we're in a global economy, that means that uh, the, it's not just the industry you're trying to save, the steel industry here, which if they don't modernize, they will not be saved. If they are modernized, they will be saved. That's as simple as that. But it's all the other industry in the United States that relies on the imported steel to make their products and to ship it outside the country as well to make their profits. And those are impacted. The $12 billion that uh, bailout that Trump is, is giving to the farmers is because of the retaliation that the farmers are getting hit with. Who's paying for that $12 billion? We are through our tax money. But I, I just want to get back to the thing about the press briefings. The last full press briefing that Trump had was the day after the midterm election. And if you remember that one... Uh, he, I, I do remember that. He was, uh, he was on a tear that day, like he is on Twitter many days. But I remember that was very hostile, right. and, and especially to the media. It was hostile to the media, especially to Acosta, but it was also... Ah, yeah, I remember that. Any of the Republicans who ran and lost because they didn't themselves with 
Yeah. Mia Love. I mean, yeah. it, I remember he he she didn't show me a whole lot of love. Let's think about that. Analyze. You see him up close and personal that we don't get to see. That the average person just watches him and observes him on television. What do you make of him when you see him up close and personal? Well, the, the one thing I, I want to mention is on that day, I actually did get a question in to him. Right? When, when you were inside the, inside yeah. the press room. Wow. Well, it, it came uh, soon after the pasta exchange, exchange uh, and the question I asked was a legitimate one. I said, well, first of all, the woman next to me was from some foreign outlet, had a thick accent. So because he is so uh, tactful, he says to her, I can't understand what you're saying, Mr. Tack. But anyway, so then I'm next with the microphone, and I said, you'll understand me because I'm from Brooklyn. And he said, <laughs> he showed it, he went with it, and he did say, I, I will understand you. And the question I asked her, I said was, this is on health care. I said, how do you keep the premiums, the cost of premiums down, and also cover pre-existing conditions after doing away with the individual mandate, which is essential to pay for both of those things. And in answer to your question, he responded, just like Sarah Huckabee Sanders responded, but didn't answer the question. He, he went on and on and on about competition and all this other stuff, but never really explained how you could cover the cost by doing away with the mandate. You know? So that's the type of thing. I, and the... Uh, when he was on the back at the South Lawn, uh, I got it also, a, the guy next to me was asking about the immigration. This is several months ago, two things. So he said, uh, I, he said that he's waiting for uh, the Democrats to give him an immigration plan. So I just, this burdened it down. I said, they did. You, you decided not to sign it, which was the bipartisan one that included Lindsey Graham. And then he said, so he pointed at me and said, that's fake. But the other one was even better. Uh, he was out in South Lawn and he called on me. And I said, uh, this was with, uh, where he was, uh, didn't get the money for the wall, right? And he said he was going to use existing resources from Department of Defense. And I said, which programs that have already been funded are you going to not move forward on in the Department of Defense in order to pay for your wall. And he said to me, there's plenty of money. And I said to myself, this guy doesn't have a clue because that money is appropriated for specific things. And if you don't use it for that, is Congress going to reappropriate you more money for those programs that you didn't use the money they gave you for, to, to, you know, to, that already paid for it? And the answer is, I doubt it, you know? So I don't think he really understands the way the, the process works. You, you know, you talk about unfit for office. If you don't understand how the government works, how could you expect to get things done? That's a real concern for me. And in, in speaking to that, I, you see some of the people who he's who he has appointed as his cabinet officials. We saw the exchange on uh, was it Monday or Tuesday with Dr. Ben Carson, who was put at HUD, and he seemingly had some difficulties with naming certain federal programs and whether he misheard the congresswoman or not. But it 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 shows some in some of the people, Rick Perry at Energy, um, and what was most confusing sometimes is that he puts P, anytime somebody speaks out against him it doesn't matter even if it's the slightest the slightest slight he has he has a natural propensity and inclination that he has to respond to avenge that to to say to 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 to, to say something um when he really doesn't have to i mean today trashing rex tillerson said he's dumb and like mr president why why would you appoint someone who is dumb do you think he just makes up these things as he goes to explain why the President of the United States can't let the slightest slight go. You know, you talk about being presidential. The, the one, uh, Buttigieg, right, when he was uh, uh, hassled at one of the rallies, 
He was dressed like a mature human being. He didn't let it stuck to him. He didn't have to come back with it. He handled it. And to me, that guy is half his, half a chunk's age with twice his maturity level, you know? So that's what you would expect from Chris, to handle it in a more dignified way. But he can't let anything slide. It's just his nature, like a 12-year-old, you know? You've got, to, you've got to get the last word. What I what I'm concerned that he, there's there's hostility aimed at journalists and members of the press, and you see this, you, you have to experience it. And I, I've I've not been to a tr- I may have been to one or two Trump rallies, but I I I think that there's some danger in this country. And I look at the Capital Gazette shooting where some deranged man walked into a newsroom and killed. Five people, and it was devastating. Veteran journalists, just wonderful people here in the state of Maryland. Do you think that he's inspiring some of these attacks on the press? By, I mean, it's it's. But think about that. Think about how dangerous it is for any elected official or leader or Kellyanne Conway consistently stepping up to the mic and to the camera and saying something that is abjectly false when the facts, we have the facts, and they are defying reality. They, I, I see it every day, and that is what's most frustrating as an average American citizen and observer who can think critically I see that they blatantly lie to the American people either because they think they can get away with it or because they think we're stupid. And we're not stupid. Right. Not that stupid, definitely not. Uh, I, they just don't want to be held limited in any way by the facts. So if the facts don't uh, you know, agree with their position, they come I've, I've never seen anything like it, Paul. We're talking about Republicans who have just sold, I think, their soul to this presidency and it's it's shameful to watch how some people who i thought had some convictions for instance lindsey graham i i thought lindsey graham was an honorable man and i and i think john mccain and look the president of the united states trashing john mccain after he has passed away what does that say i mean he's mccain is haunting him no because he's not i mean this president not even being invited to Barbara Bush's funeral. There's so many things. I mean, back in, remember 2017, during, during the middle of summer, um, it, it, he said something about Mika Brzezinski and said something about her facelift. What president says that? And people look at him and they're thinking, oh yeah, we love it, some of his base. What do you make of that? But I think, that, but what does that speak to the base, though? They love it. But again, the base is 35%. That's not going to change. But you need to have more than 35, 40% to win. He was able to win with under a majority, or less than 50%, because people stayed home. They didn't want to vote for Hillary because the uh, brainwashing was so intense. I'm thinking that that can't work again. I just can't see it working again. That people are going to, whoever the, the Democrat is, is going to not. If he tries the same thing with the same uh, tactics of the uh, nicknames and the, you know, the Pocahontas nonsense, people get tired of that. They have to get tired of that. What do you make of the Russia investigation? I mean, that's a broad question, but it came back that there was um, n- no specific instances of quote-unquote collusion, but there was hundreds of examples where his campaign team talked to Russian agents that they had contact. There was something, I believe, was going on. I don't know if Trump was smart enough to, to pull the trigger himself. But then again, the report also said that there was, they outlined 10 cases of obstruction of justice. And I believe Mueller was smart enough to say, this is a political question where Department of Justice standards says we're not going to indict a sitting president. So he left it to Congress's hands. And Bill Barr came in and decided that he would be the president's personal attorney instead of the country's attorney. And Bill Barr, that day that he came out on that Sunday afternoon when the report was released and he characterized it, 
I think that 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 was a shining moment in the history of this country where a the, the attorney general came out and lied to the American people. I saw your column on that. Yeah. Making fun of Sessions. Would he pick somebody who would also recuse himself? The answer is no. But the thing that got me with Barr was the, uh, during the hearing, the recent hearing, he said basically that the president, all right, has the authority that if he sees an investigation of himself is basically unfounded, unjustified, he has the authority to kill it to squash it. Think about that. That would mean that, now this comes from the top legal person in the country, the Attorney General of the United States. Think about that. That would mean that the only investigations of the President that the President could not kill would be those that he thought were justified. (laughs) That would be an admission of guilt. So to come from the Attorney General, that tells you all you need to know about the Attorney General. But as far as the report goes, I did go through the full report, and it's not an easy read because it has so many citations and legal things, and I'm not an attorney, and I've never played one on TV. <laughs> but to go through all that, but clearly, I could not find the word collusion in the report. He talks about legal standards for conspiracy. He's talking about criminal standards. So clearly, that's why he didn't, not just didn't go against us, uh, Trump on the collusion aspect, but the other members of his, his campaign, because there wasn't enough that they didn't actually conspire with them. They didn't sit down and actually work out what Russia was doing. He lays out in volume one everything that Russia did. Whether you could say that anyone from the campaign was directly involved intentionally, you couldn't make that decision, and so you couldn't get a, uh, a conviction, an indictment. So that explains that. But uh, as far as the, uh, he makes it also clear, and this again with Barr said that, uh, you know, no collusion, no obstruction. He made it clear, he meaning Mueller, that the reason he didn't go forward with an indictment of the president was because of the Office of Legal Counsel uh, opinion that you can't indict a sitting president. Because to do that, you couldn't go forward with it, but even if you brought the charges now to, to do later, he would, the president would not be given the opportunity to defend himself in a court of law. And that was, went into it. So what he did was, as he said, he laid out the roadmap for Congress to do their thing. And he laid out all of the obstruction, of the basis of an obstruction charge. He laid that all out. And so what, clearly, the way I read it, he expects Congress to pick up the baton and move forward with their responsibilities as, as put forward in the Constitution, impeachment. I, I know that there's a majority of the Democratic Party, at least people who aren't in Congress and registered Democrats all over the country, they are asking the Congress to do its oversight job, and that's the difference. I don't think... It seems like that this White House doesn't understand that Congress has the constitutional authority to conduct oversight. And and so they're asking for impeachment. They they see it, and even Pelosi, I think, is probably being torn in different directions. But, Paul, what's, is it that impeachment is such a divisive issue that it's so unpopular that that's why they are not moving forward yet? Or is this going to happen? Well, number one, it, it seems like they keep looking at yeah, and I don't know if that's a fair example to use. It's the better example is look at 1974 with Nixon. But the thing is that uh, they're worried about uh, a backlash. Well, the backlash they should worry about is from their own base, all right? Because uh, the, the voters came out in 2018, and clearly it was an anti-Trump vote, and it gave, they gave the Democrats back the House. So what I would not want to see is that they turn off the turnout, because Democrats only win when there's large turnout. And in 2016, not enough turnout. 2018, massive turnout. So you want that same turnout in 2020. And if you turn off the, the ones who came out in 2018 and gave you back the House to do something to, uh, to actually implement checks and balances, 
all right, and separation of powers, uh, you run the risk. If you lose them, then you're going to lose a lot more uh, than if you, if you just sit tight. How's this going to end? I think the way I think it's going to end is that the next thing has to be Mueller to testify before the public. And as soon as that's over, and people... Do you think he will? I, I think so, because he is an honorable man. He does have integrity. And I can't imagine that he wants the misrepresentation of his findings to be out there and not do anything about Do you think that his testimony before whatever Congress... I, I assume it's going to be the Congressional Committee, the... Um, the, the Judiciary? Okay. Do you think that's going to be a, 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 a spectacle or just a, a one of those critical historical moments in our country? No, I think what it, what it means is he's going to talk only about the stuff that's already out there, which is the uh, uh, redacted version of yeah. the report. But he will clarify, what did you mean? Why did you not indict? If he explains that, what did you intend for it to go to Congress for them to do their uh, constitutional responsibility? If he clarifies that, then it's going to give them the green light to go forward with an inquiry and then as, as much as Trump has attempted to sully Robert Mueller, it almost seems like he held back in a way because I think he knows deep down that Mueller is an honorable man and this he tried to use the excuse, oh, Mueller had a conflict. He's a hate. I mean, it's just nonsense. Of course. No, um, you know, Coney still gets a lot of grief. He, he's Comey is viewed skeptically um, amongst, I think, both Democrats and Republicans for his decision to reopen the case ten be, ten days before Hillary Clinton um, may have won, and all polls indicated that. I think that that was a defining moment in the campaign, and I think that Hillary probably acknowledges that had that not occurred, then she may very well have won. We don't know. I think that Hillary was um, a weak candidate, though. I, I, she It just seems like there was this visceral reaction from people. Um, it, not the same that we're going to see from a Joe Biden or... Um, I don't. I don't know where Bernie Sanders is going to align in in this race. There's so many candidates. It does seem like it's a burden, a Biden Bernie race now with Kamala Harris and maybe Booker and Buttigieg, um, Warren, and I think everybody else is kind of uh, at the the lower tier. Well, the further into the process we go, the more people will not get the money that they need. To That's right. And they'll start. Well, I think that – look at someone like John Delaney, um, who was the first out the gate to, to, to run for president. Um, and, and some people predicted that he was going to run for governor. He was putting out signals that he was going to – and if he ran for governor, the, there is a theory that's, that says that he would have run a, a moderate campaign and perhaps he would have prevailed in this election. But these guys that run – you've been covering politics for quite a long time. Is it to get on stage – is that the goal, is to get onto the debate stage or to, to set yourself up from something else or to get some name record? I mean, if you have no chance to, to win, and I'm not saying that Delaney has no chance. I mean, there's always a chance. But what, what, um, what, what's, what's the, uh, you know, the motivation to do this when you know that it's going to be really tough? Yeah, I mean, in the case of Delaney, I thought he, he really did feel that if he gets out there early, he could get a movement going, which didn't, didn't materialize. So I think he believed he could win. I didn't believe it all right? Because I didn't think that he was even that well-known in District 6, you know? But uh, I think he was sincere and committed to it. And he does have, he was sometimes portrayed as a, uh, a Democrat, a, a Republican in Democrat clothing because he is a businessman. He understood that. But I think that's a good thing. And that's why I thought he, I, why I think he thought that he'd be able to make a difference between him and the everyone else. Yeah. But as far as, I mean, you've got people going uh, for it, and I'm saying to myself, maybe it's because of Trump, because that's looking at Trump and said, well, if he could get in, 
I can get in, you know, because everyone thinks that they know more than he does, and they probably do. But I look and say, you know, when I was in the, uh, in the government, I didn't put in for IT jobs because, you know what, I'm not qualified for an IT job. But these people are putting for president, like you can go straight from being, like, uh, the one who gets me is, is uh, Tim Ryan. He failed in his uh, ability to unseat uh, Nancy Pelosi as speaker, but yet he thinks he's going to be able to win, and uh, above all these other 22 uh, candidates, as president. And I, I just don't see it, unless what they're looking for is just to get the national exposure, maybe end up with the vice presidency, who knows. I mean, somebody coming from, like, in Ohio, that may, maybe makes sense. Uh, but just to get, you know, maybe people come to them and say, we're going to back you financially. And you say, well, as long as the money is there, what do I got to lose? Right. I, I don't want to make any predictions. And I don't think we can at this point about the Democratic primary. But back to, back to your prediction on how you think this ends with Donald Trump. Is he impeached? Is he not reelected or reelected and then... It, it, we're talking about another five, six years. I mean, nobody predicted that he'd win in the first place, but I got to go again with the fact that he's there. Looks like it'll be four years. He really showed his true colors. The uh, going back to the tax plan—that's the only thing that they got through as far as draining the swamp. Who did he drain the swamp with? The, the people from Goldman Sachs, who they said, well, uh, Hillary uh, took the, you know, the. Uh, an exorbitant uh, speaker fee, and yet he filled it with all these people. I mean, Mnuchin was the king of foreclosures, and that's what. So I think people are finally getting to understand that what he said and what he does and what he represents are not the same thing. And I don't see him winning again. As far as impeachment goes, if he doesn't get impeached, throw that impeachment rule out the door because if this guy is so unfit. If he doesn't get impeached, then what do you need it for? Um, and I think the argument will resurface closer to the election that the Supreme Court is at stake. And I think women are looking to say, to see, they they got Kavanaugh on. And that was one of the most contentious Supreme Court nomination battles I've ever seen. And and I, look, I was born in 80, 85. I think the next closest to that would have been Clarence Thomas. But... I think women are going to say there's a real possibility that Roe v. Wade is under assault, and it could happen. Yeah, and it won't be where they just overrule it. It'll be where they allow the states to do things that they're doing now. They're doing now. It's impossible to even get access to uh, you know, a, a, a choice. You know, and a woman, the basic uh, basis of uh, Roe v. Wade wasn't abortion or no abortion. It was giving a right to women to, to choose. You know, it's right. their constitutional right. And to take that away, I, you know, I'm hopeful that Roberts, yeah. not that he's come through for me on a lot of these decisions, but I got to think that he does care about the Supreme Court as an institution. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that argument. Um, and that could be very well true, that he does care about the institution and he is the... I wouldn't call him the rinquist of the court, but he's certainly someone who um, can can now be the swing vote. Right. I think he is the swing vote now. And, and uh, going yeah. along with established precedents, you know. You know, if Roe v. Wade goes, the next one that they're going to be looking at is uh, uh, the Board of Education, the uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. You know, where is it going to end? And then you can't really, the whole thing about the courts, the way it works is you rely on precedent. It's already been established. You don't overturn it unless there's real good reason to. And uh, if they do something that's been around for uh, over 40, uh, 50 years, like uh, Roe v. Wade, or 60, 70 years, like Brown uh, uh, vs. Board of Education, then you can't rely on any precedent anymore. That, that really will destroy the court system. And, you know, as far as the, uh, the election goes and impeachment, I, I really think that what uh, Trump is doing now is not just the Mueller investigation that's giving them ammunition for new impeachment. It's the way he's acting now. If you care about separation of powers, and that, which is the, the essential element of the Constitution, by not uh, allowing any kind of ignoring subpoenas and, and not allowing your, your staff to testify, I mean, I think he's digging his own grave, grave where he's going to force an impeachment. And I think the Supreme Court is uh, going to 
support all of these cases where they're saying that Congress has the right to subpoena. And I can see that little by little now, where a lot of the things where he didn't want the Deutsche Bank files to be provided. Yeah, speaking of which, do you think that we will see some form of his true tax returns? What do you think, as a political commentator with that hat on, what is it in his tax returns? It's not the audit. Come on, that's. I think we. He could release them. Is it? Do you think that he's concerned that we will find out that he has been somehow financed or influenced, or he has done deals with foreign nations? I think we'll find that out, but I don't think that's his number one concern. I think his number one concern is his ego, and his number one concern is it's going to reveal that he's not as wealthy. You think so? You think that's it? I mean, that's that's been a... He's a fraud, and it's all about what people think about him. That's why he would call up as John Barron and John Miller and try to just get more exposure. That's what, you know, how he ended up with uh, the, the Apprentice, is to get exposure. That's, that's why he doesn't even own a lot of the real estate. It's just his name that he owns. And as long as he sees Trump on, I'm surprised that when I go to the White House, I don't see the word Trump on the White House. So that's what he's concerned about, and I think that's the number one driver. He doesn't want people to think he's or to know that he's not as wealthy as he portrays himself. How do you think this period in American history will be characterized in the future? It'll, it'll be uh, an anomaly. It'll be a, a lot, and uh, it's going to take a, a while to get over it. Uh, but I think if we can just get 2020, that's the first step in trying to uh, correct this. It's really embarrassment in our history. If he loses, will he go quietly? Certainly not, but that's why the hope also is that he, he loses by a big enough margin that uh, there's, there's no question. But there is talk, and fairly so. I mean, he, he jokes on the campaign trail about a, a thank you about a fifth term or a you know another what four. He he jokes to extending beyond the constitutionally mandated two terms, eight years. I don't know if that's necessary. It may be a joke, but I, I think if he could get away with it, I think he might press that. Yeah, I don't think he can get away with it, but who knows? If, you know, if you don't have the Republicans standing up for the Constitution, who knows what can happen? Yeah, and look at Justin Amash, who is a Republican constitutionalist, a libertarian who took a stand, and now he is being treated as the 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 the, the, the bastard stepchild of the uh, the Republican Party. Right. Well, so and that's another question I wanted to ask you. I'm sure you have a lot of sources and contacts, and you talk to many people in order to formulate your columns and to ask tough questions. What are you hearing from Republicans who are in Congress? Are they what is their take on this president? They just can't speak out, or they really support this agenda, or what is it? Yeah, it's all about being primary. Ah, it's about the election, right? Yeah. Mm. And to me, that's offensive because uh, your number one goal when you go into Congress is not to be reelected; it should be to get something done. But they probably see things that they're very uncomfortable with. I mean, how do they go home and 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 talk to their constituents and say, "Look, what this." talk about the president as a man, a human being. I mean, some of the things that he has done in his life, he takes, he shows no remorse. And I, I look, as a father, I, I would not want my kids to replicate someone of his character. And I think that that's a fair, dis- and I think the Republicans say, well, we don't have to like him, or we don't have to think he's a good guy to to support his agenda. But they do that in turn to the Democrats and say, oh, well, Nancy Pelosi is a bad person, therefore she shouldn't be in office. I, I've, there's so much hypocrisy that runs through politics, and it's not just – look, it's on both sides, I will say. I mean, it's definitely on both sides. And But I think we're at a period in American history, and someone who covers just local politics and has got my start in journalism, I see the hypocrisy that is just stunning, Paul. responded to the impeachment of uh, Clinton and for what he did, which was basically uh, 
a transgression, but a personal transgression. Right. I mean, he his issue is that he lied about it, and then Ken Starr was called in to really investigate Whitewater, and then they found this subplot that, and then they exploited that because that was still around the time that they could talk about the they could use the religious right. That that I mean, it's hard to believe that it was 1998, I mean, or 20 years ago, but. I, I, I look at this culture in American politics, and you see it on social media, I'm sure. It's just so divisive. And I, I see that um, we're, we're, we are divided, but I don't know what it's going to take if to, to reunite the country, and I just don't have the answer to that yet. I mean, maybe the first step is to go through this election and talk about the issues, but I've also seen some Democrats on the campaign trail running for president that they're— they're hesitant in a way to attack him when sometimes they might just be better off to say, President's a bad guy, or he's he's a personally... But you know, he makes the case for that himself. The thing is, you have to take into consideration what he's done. You talk about, I was uh, there one day where he uh, was new in, uh, in the office, and he had this whole pile of uh, regulations right, that he said, we're getting rid of all of them. And I guarantee you that he didn't read any single one of them, but he's getting rid of them because he's playing to those who want less uh, regulation. Well, it also could mean less clean air, less clean water. So what are you actually getting rid of, you know? And uh, so I think that um, there's going to have to be a lot of undoing of the undoing. And his number one motivation is to undo anything that Obama was involved in. So he walked away from the Iran nuclear deal, but I guarantee you, if he was able to, to uh, negotiate the same exact deal with North Korea, he would be asking for the Nobel Prize. The other thing, though, is that climate change. He walked away from the Paris, yeah. You know, you, you've got to be part of the team in order to have influence on the team. The other thing he walked away from was the TPP, all right? Who did he give that over to? He gave it over to China, all right? So he makes a lot of poor decisions as well. Uh, he said the other day at, uh, when he was rolling out his new immigration plan, he said as far as, again, going back to customs, uh, scanning, uh, the way it works, you have these parking containers, thousands and thousands and thousands of parking containers going through the ports of entry every mm. single day. And they are able to examine like 3% or so. Uh, so a couple of things like this. So he said that we're going to increase the standing from 3% to 100%. The man knows nothing about what he talks about. What does 100% scanning mean? It means that you would have traffic jams from the southern border back up to the southern tip of South America, if not Antarctica. So, uh, but as far as cost goes, let's say you were able to, you, you do need more, more uh, staffing and more equipment and more space for the equipment. But let's say you doubled the uh, staffing and the, uh, the equipment. That would get you to 6%. If you tripled it, it would get you to 9%. How much would it cost to get you to 100%? It's, it's absurd, all right? But yet he says it, and nobody goes back at him explaining the absurdity. And that's what I have a problem with his, his staff. they got to be able to explain this to him, that you can't say that, but he may, maybe they do, and he says it anyway. I, I, and we hear very little about a, a chief of staff any longer. I think he's running his own communication. I mean, he's his own communications director. He's his own messenger and I, I I can just imagine what it's like as a staffer who tries to come out with a coherent strategy for the week on messaging and communications and how they're going to roll out a certain plan and a single tweet can disengage the entire process right and so um, Paul uh, what's the name of your book So it covered that period of time. As I mentioned before, it goes into a lot of other uh, issues as, as well. And where can where can people find it? Amazon. Amazon. Okay. And uh, do you also the Montgomery County Sentinel? That's where they can read your columns. Yes, uh, you can subscribe to it. Mm -hmm. um, and every week on the page for the opinion piece, Paul's view, and uh, uh, it's online. And uh, we do now, uh, I do videos as well as the, mm. the column. 
You can also get it at 7-Eleven and uh, Rite Aid and Giant, I believe. Uh, and it comes out every Thursday. Mm. Hard paper, but the online is available all the time. So this gig, is it has to be a lot of fun, and I'm sure you're going to stick with it. You're in a, just at a, a vitally important time in American history, and you are covering this front and center, and uh, I, I admire your your tenacity going down there every day or some well not every day because you don't know when they're going to hold a briefing i hope they hold a briefing it, it would be nice to 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 put for them to talk about what they want to accomplish for the american people and to be questioned about it that's that's how democracy functions and yeah and and the press is doing a a constitutional role they're, they have a vital role in this process and as the fourth leg of government it's just uh I, I, I'm, I'm concerned about the way that the media is being treated. And they don't always get it right, but calling the New York Times failing New York Times or, or, or just blanketly labeling the press as dishonest and fake, that has lasting consequences. But what I do love about this era is that, it, it, look, I wasn't around during Watergate, but I've watched enough movies and read enough books to, to understand that, look, this, I, this error is really inspired some of the best journalism that I have ever read and they have brought out some of the the best reporters to cover these issues. Fearless, dogged reporters, and uh, one of my favorite one of my favorite people um, in the newspaper business was Ben Bradley, and his son was actually at uh, the the, the Gaither's. That's right, yeah, Ben Bradley Jr. I I I read Ben Bradley's book, and we're talking about an old school, just editor of the Washington Post during the Nixon and uh, era, and these guys lived and and breathed by the pen they they respected journalism and i i see that resurgence coming back and i think this president is inspiring that and then when he is long gone i think we're going to look back on this chapter in american history and be able to reflect with a clear mind that the attacks on the media the the for the state it's it's harmful to a democracy for a reason You think this guy is a lot worse than Nixon? I mean, Nixon was very smart. Yeah, and, and Nixon did, did it with alcohol, too. And I think this guy doesn't drink, and, and maybe he should. <laughs> um, Paul, you were a fantastic guest. I loved having you today. Uh, this is I always like to drift out sometimes and talk about national politics. It's on our minds, and we I, we think about it a lot, and people who are news, uh, uh, news followers, um, national politics seems to creep in many conversations at dinner and whatnot. But um, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and having this conversation. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, well, come back and uh, we'll make this a routine thing and then um, have fun at the White House. Thank you. Another great episode on the books. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to visit a minordetailpodcast.com for the latest podcast episodes and updates. Please subscribe to a minor detail podcast on iTunes, Google Play, CastBox, Stitcher, or any platform where you listen and download your podcast episodes. Check out aminordetail.com and subscribe to the daily newsletter for the latest Maryland news and politics. My name is Ryan Miner. Thank you so much for listening.